When I went to Petra last year, I had no idea what my eyes would see. I've seen a lot of beautiful places around the world. But the most beautiful geological formation my eyes have ever seen, topping the Canadian Rockies, uh, topping even uh, barrier reefs, topping the Grand Canyon, and a host of other beautiful, beautiful, beautiful sights was Petra. When you go to Petra, you walk through a narrows with cliffs that rise on either side up at least 700 feet. And at times you can reach out and touch both sides at one time. It's a red sandstone. And you walk through this for more than a mile. It's absolutely breathtaking. We walked through at about noon to enter, and we walked through with nothing but moonlight as we left, and it was stunning. Then you get inside, and not only have your eyes seen what for me was the most beautiful geological formation, then you find what is arguably the most beautiful geological formation or archaeological formation, and that is these ruins of the city of Petra, carved into the face of this rock. A buddy I met on the way. But if you have never been there, perhaps you're more familiar with this. Raiders of the Lost Ark. A good part of it was filmed right there. In Petra. You pass by one of the... Now you can see in the doorway, look at that person. You can barely see the faint image in the darkened, shadowed doorway. You get an idea for the enormity of this structure. Well, little did I know, even when I was there, that Petra is spoken about in the Old Testament book, the book of Obadiah. Turn with me, please, in your Bibles this morning and in your notes, if you would have both of them out. When I began preaching through the Bible about 15 months ago, the only book I was dreading was the book of Obadiah. And for months now, I've been saying, oh, pray for me, I've got to preach through Obadiah. And this week, I feel like I've struck oil. Obadiah is incredible. Not only does it contain the name Petra, verse 3, in the Hebrew it's Selah, in the Greek it's Petra, in the English it's rock. But it's referring to this land which was governed by the Edomites. When you remember the name Esau, Abraham had... One legitimate child with his wife, Sarah, Isaac. Isaac had two children, Esau and Jacob. They were twins. They were born within moments of each other. Esau came out first, then Jacob. 
And Esau settled in the land of Petra and gave rise to a nation known as the Edomites. That is the audience of the book of Obadiah. Obadiah can be summarized in two sections. The first 17 verses really uh, describe uh, the destruction of the sons of Esau. And the last six verses summarize the blessing and redemption to Esau's, the descendants of Esau's brother Jacob. That's the summary of the entire book. It's almost as if the two walls of the cliffs on either side of the entryway into Petra describe the scope of humanity summarized in the book of Obadiah. All humanity is captured in the book of Obadiah. Half of humanity is represented by the descendants of Esau. Half of humanity is represented by the descendants of Jacob. And both are addressed in this, the shortest book in the Old Testament. Only 21 sentences or verses. The shortest of all. There are a number of unique features to the book of Obadiah. It's one of only seven Old Testament books never quoted in the New Testament. There's only two of the 17 prophets of the Old Testament that were not quoted in the New Testament, Nahum and Obadiah. The other five books are Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, were never quoted in the New Testament. But it's the only book in the Old Testament about uh, the author we know nothing Every other prophet, we know a great deal about them. We know nothing about Obadiah. There were 13 people in the Old Testament with the name Obadiah. And we know more about the others than we know about the guy who wrote the book. He was a friend of Amos, and Amos refers to Obadiah four times. But he tells us nothing of detail, just about the summary of the prophecy. Obadiah. Obadiah means the servant of the Lord. And Obadiah represents all those unknown servants of the Lord who do their thing, who have a great impact, who speak the word of God for God, but whose names are never remembered, about whom we know nothing. There are a whole lot more servants of God who go about their business anonymously, who are never known, who never receive a a tribute, than for those who are recognized. And Obadiah is, in a sense, the patron saint of all those invisible servants of the Lord whose names will never even be remembered. Obadiah. And in these short words, blessed are the brief, for they will be heard again. This would be good for all preachers to remember the tricks of Obadiah to keep it short and sweet. The first half of his book is the judgment against the descendants of Esau, and we're going to see why. The last six verses summarize the blessing and redemption for the sons of Jacob, and we will see why. You remember the story of Isaac's two boys. 
the firstborn would receive the firstborn blessing. Except when that child rejects the blessing and it's imparted and received by the other. And that was the case with Esau. Esau was the man's man. He was the guy out in the field. He was the hunter doing the guy thing. Jacob was more a mama's boy. He was tied to the apron strings and, and played in the kitchen and made things and was a chef. And he had cooked himself a meal. Esau comes home famished. And at a weak moment, Esau says, here, I'll give you the birthright. Just give me your stew. Give me the food. And he sells his firstborn blessing for a single meal to satisfy his stomach. Jacob, on the other hand, valued the blessing of the father. And he not only wanted the blessing of the father, but he wanted the blessing of father God. And he received that blessing. Esau represents the prideful. Jacob, the humble. Esau represents those who were self-sufficient. And Jacob, those who knew they needed God. Esau, those who lived for temporal things and appetites. Jacob, those who lived for eternal things. Esau, the one who rejected God. Jacob, the one who knew he needed God and who encountered God. Esau, the one who lived for the here and now and Jacob, the one who lived by faith for all eternity. The two streams of humanity, all captured in this one little book. Now specifically, here's the setting of the book of Obadiah. It was written right after 586 B.C., immediately following the fall of Jerusalem. Because what happened was, the descendants of Jacob had suffered at the hands of the Babylonians. And the neighboring country of the Edomites looked on from their citadel, their fortress of Petra, and stood back and watched the ravaging of their brothers, the descendants of Jacob, in Jerusalem. They watched the destruction take place. And worse than just watching, when it was obvious that they were done and through and, and that the nation had fallen, the sons of Esau went and actually took the spoils of Jerusalem, laughing as they walked home and padded their own homes with the stuff they stole from their brothers who had suffered the destruction of Jerusalem. It's to that group that God speaks through Obadiah about family feuds, about the tension within the one single family of Isaac. Chapter, well, chapter. <laughs> There's one chapter. Verse 9. Everyone in Esau's mountains, referring to the mountains of Petra, will be cut down in the slaughter. Verse 10. Because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. 
On the day you stood aloof while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. You should not look down on your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. Verse 13, you should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor look down on them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. This really addresses issues within the family, within the church. This really strikes at the whole thing of rejoicing when other people suffer, of friction within the fellowship of over worship issues or style or expressions. The Bible says that we are one body. We are one family. And just as for Esau and Jacob and their descendants, they both had the same father. And it was utterly unacceptable for the one to rejoice at the suffering of the other. So in the family of God, when we have the same father, how can it be that we have such differences? That is not acceptable. The judgment of God spoken through Obadiah to the sons of Esau are spoken against such activities even today in the family. When Jesus prayed on that night, Lord, make them one. As the Father and the Son are one, may they be one. May my disciples and those who believe on me through their witness, may they be one. So that the world may know that you sent me. The unity of the fellowship determines the blessing of God to others who are watching. And here Obadiah has this strict word of judgment against the descendants of Esau because they distanced themselves during the struggle. Instead of rolling up their sleeves and helping and seeing what they could do and having compassion. It was their pride that isolated them and deceived them. You see, Petra was a prideful place. They were proud over what they had. They would march against neighboring countries, ravage them, loot their homes, and carry the spoils back to Petra. And when the foreigners would try to come and retaliate, they knew they could defend their turf and defeat the enemies. They were prideful in their isolation. What a picture! What a pitiful picture of the isolation of prideful supremacy over other races, over other nations. God judged it. What we find here is encapsulated the downward spiral of the majority of humanity that all has in common one central vice, pride. Not everyone has a gambling problem. Not everyone has a, a alcohol problem or an addiction problem. But everyone has a pride problem. C.S. Lewis in 
His book, Mere Christianity, defines pride better than anyone I've ever read. He calls pride the essential vice, the utmost evil. It was pride that made the devil the devil. Pride has been the chief cause of misery of every nation and every family since the world began. Other vices may sometimes bring people together. You can have good fellowship and jokes while you're drunk or unchaste. But pride always means enmity. It is enmity. Not only enmity between man and man, but between man and God. In God, you come up against something that is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that and know yourself, therefore, as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on other things and other people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. That's profound. You see, the children of Esau prided themselves in Petra, their impenetrable fortress. They would sit on top of the mountains, and when the the enemies would try to get down through the valley, it was easy for them to destroy them in their prideful places of superiority. And literally, that is the tallest point in the area, and they were able to look down on everyone around them. A very picture of their own pride in the, the place geographically where they were positioned. But God is not mocked. The Bible says that God opposes the proud. Pride comes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. No, this downward spiral of pride. Pride brought deception. They thought they were impenetrable. They thought they were invincible. They thought nothing could touch them. Their deception brought violence. They thought they could beat up on others, including their own brothers, the children of Jacob. And the violence brought shame. And God said to them, verse 10 and 11, you are covered with shame. This is a shameful thing that you have done to your own flesh and blood. Now the picture, the judgment of God against the proud, is almost like the one rock face on the one side walking through the narrows into Petra. It's the downward fall and progression of pride. But on the other side, at the end of Obadiah, there is the ascent, the rise, the progression of humility. And for that, we see it all in verses 17 and 21. It says, but on Mount Zion, that's the metaphor for God's city of Jerusalem, but on Mount Zion will be, now listen to what will be on Mount Zion. There will be deliverance, it will be holy, and the house of Jacob will possess its inheritance. This is so incredible. On Mount Zion, for the humble, there will be deliverance. The word deliverance in the Hebrew is exactly the same word for salvation. 
In fact, when Jesus came, he was given the Hebrew word Yeshua, which means Savior or Deliverer. It's exactly the same word. Yeshua, Jesus, Savior, Deliverer. He was the Deliverer who came as the Messiah. Now, the Bible says that it's the poor in spirit who have the kingdom of God. That no one can save themselves. In fact, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that in due time He may lift you up. And the first thing that the humble get who come to worship the one true God is salvation. Deliverance. It comes by grace, not by efforts of our own, but by trusting in the name of the Lord. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It's not a result of works, so that no one can boast. The boastful, the prideful, will never receive salvation, as is illustrated by the judgments against Esau. But the humble receive salvation, who look beyond themselves, knowing that they don't have any ability to save themselves. They look to the Lord, who is their Savior. Now, the second thing that the humble get, the first is deliverance or salvation. The second is, it says, and they will be holy. Holy. The Hebrew word there is kadash, and it means set apart. But the Hebrew word kadesh is the verb form, and it means to cut. To cut, to separate what's not needed from what is needed. The wasted from what we're redeeming. Those of you seamstresses will cut clothing, and when you cut clothing, you don't focus on the hem that you're you're throwing away or that that piece of the garment that you're not going to use. You focus on what you are using. Those of you that are hunters or fishermen, when you fillet your fish, you don't focus on the scales or the head or the, the skeleton inside or the guts. You focus on the fillet. And holiness, God wants us focusing more on Himself, more on the fact that we are holy to the Lord than what He's taking us out of. We, once we're delivered, now we are holy. We're dedicated to God. And the third thing we get as those who've humbled themselves, we get salvation, we become holy, dedicated to God, and we now get to possess our inheritance. This is so awesome. Our inheritance. Literally, it means we will possess our possessions. It's exactly the same word. The verb and the noun. We will get to own what's really ours. And God delivers us and saves us to make us holy to Himself so that then we can possess all that is rightfully ours in Christ and live the kind of life that God designed from us for us from the beginning. That's a lot out of one verse. It's all right there in verse 17. And then the verse 21 picks up on it. Verse 17, but on Mount Zion will be deliverance. Look at verse 21. Deliverers will go up on Mount Zion. They, uh, to govern the nations of Esau. And the kingdom will be the Lord's. This is a bullseye for Palm Sunday. Who would have thought? 
What was Palm Sunday? Palm Sunday was when, even though they didn't even know what they were doing, the, the crowds in Jerusalem were crying, Hosanna. They were honoring Jesus because they knew that He was the Messiah, but they thought He was going to set up His earthly reign now. But it was allowed because in the providence of God, it was a prophetic declaration of the day when Jesus would reign from Mount Zion, from Jerusalem, and govern the nations of the earth. And that is exactly what Obadiah verse 21 is prophesying. That the deliverers, those of us who've been saved, will gather with Christ to with Him govern the nations of the world, and we will reign with Christ. Now, we ought to clap for that. It's all right there. This is a Palm Sunday text. And the kingdom will be the Lord's. Now here, in Petra, the most beautiful geological site my eyes have ever taken in. I put it that way because I'd have to say looking at my wife is more beautiful. But other than my wife, walking in Petra is like, you have got to be, this is, and then you round the next bend, and it's another one, and it's another one. But here it is. That site with these towering cliffs on either side, They go up as far as you can see. You can reach out your hands. And the one cliff represents the downward fall of those who reject God. Who are prideful at the core. The unredeemed of humanity. And the other cliff represents those that the Lord will lift up and give to them salvation and they will rule with Him. Those who have humbled themselves and have cried out for the mercies and salvation of God who have become the holy. It's all right there. And when Jesus held out His arms on the cross, He held out His arms to both the sons of Esau and the sons of Jacob. Because until we breathe our last, only God knows which is our spiritual lineage. And you may have lived your life in pride. You you may have rejected God your whole life. Or at least lived like it. And suffered the consequences of disaster. Jesus has His arms extended out to you today. And if you have received salvation, on the other hand, but have not declared yourself holy to God, you're still focusing on what God's delivered you from. Turn around. Recognize that you're devoted to God. Live holy to God. And enter into your inheritance. Possess your possessions. And all that God has given to you. No, Jesus extends His arms to both. In fact, on one side was a thief and on the other side was a thief. And the one rejected and the one received. And His hands were held out to both. It is not God's will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. No, God would not have spoken to the sons of Esau just to condemn them if there wasn't a redemptive purpose. 
God speaks to those who have been living like sons of Esau and says, it's not too late. You can repent and turn and give your life to Christ. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the clarity of Your Word. Thank You that You are a God who calls those out of darkness into the light. Thank You that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That we've all gone down the the downward spiral of pride and self-sufficiency. But Your Word tells us all who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you're here this morning and have never trusted Christ as your Savior, would you do it today? I want to give you an opportunity right now. You can pray this prayer with me. Lord Jesus, I repent. I have been prideful. But I humble myself today. And I admit there's no way I can make myself right with God. And I call on the name of the Lord. Jesus, thank You for dying on the cross for me and rising from the dead. And I receive today salvation. You are my Savior. You're my Deliverer. And I turn from sin to You to serve You, the true and living God. And I receive the gift of salvation. Hallelujah.